Hey everybody, I'm Francesca Maxime and this is Wise Girl and I have a very special guest here with me today, Terry Real in Massachusetts. He is a therapist, a couples therapist and has been doing a lot of work and conversations around patriarchy lately, which is why I wanted to bring him on. It's not a dirty word. He's also the author of um, the seminal work, uh, whoops, that's the wrong one, the seminal work. I don't want to talk about it, uh, discussing male depression, how can I get through to you, which discussed um, relationship uh, conversations and issues and uh, the new rules of marriage, all of which I've read and highly recommend. So thank you, Terry, for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure, Francesca. <laughs> I roped you in. Um, <laughs> you roped me in. You I, 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 me I, in. <laughs> I did, I did. I roped you in. And, you know, I want to just really quickly and briefly uh, mention something. You were speaking to a group of uh, goop, Gwyneth Paltrow devotees lately, here in New York City. Uh, I'm here in Brooklyn. Tell me how that went and how the response was to some of what you shared with those ladies. And what were the questions that they were really asking that they wanted answers for that you were maybe able to at least address, if not, you know, answer completely? Yeah, it was a great, it was actually a great experience. Six, about 600 women. And I was interviewed by Gwyneth Paltrow for about 20 minutes about my work and relational life therapy. She's a very intelligent gal. And, uh, and then they brought a couple on live, and I worked live with a couple for 30 minutes. And then they asked questions, you know, what do women want to know? They want to know what to do with guys. <laughs> it's a big problem, isn't it? And um, so I spoke about how to get more of what you want in your relationships and how to help men deliver more for their women. I love it. I love it. Um, I think it's so critical and also I'll be addressing and asking you to talk a little bit about this stuff although you work with couples as how it applies to people who are not currently coupled or sure. married, but you know how how we're working with this system if you will that is still systemic you know patriarchy sometimes I feel like the naming of things can be problematic you know uh, patriarchy sends people right out of the room as does feminism sometimes yeah right you know? I want new names for things. You and I have to come up with new names, um, but, or, or we can get a tribe together. I want to just quote what you said at the beginning of a class uh, that you offered a couple weeks ago. The traditional roles of men and women do not lead to intimacy. They weren't constructed to lead men and women into intimacy. Patriarchy is not about intimacy. It is about production, consumption, and stability. And I just want you to, if you don't mind, um, let that sink in for folks in terms of what does that really mean? They're not just up against their husband or their partner or their boss. Yeah. They're up against more than that. Yeah, they're up against a few thousand years worth of system. You know, by patriarchy, that awful word, what I mean are the traditional gender roles of men and women. And what are they? The traditional role for women is to be accommodating and resentful to the loss of voice, as all the feminist writers have, have focused on. Um, the traditional role of men is to be invulnerable. The essence of traditional masculinity is invulnerability. The more invulnerable you are, the more manly you are, the more vulnerable you are, the more girly you are, and that's that. Now, what we know is that people connect through vulnerability. And so what I say is that a um, inwardly shame-based, outwardly grandiose-driven man coupled with an outwardly accommodating, inwardly resentful, 
uh, woman is America's power couple. Uh, I see those couples all the time. They've made great successes in their professional lives and a hash of their personal lives. And the traditional roles of men and women, voicelessness for women and uh, heartlessness for men, disconnection for men, just doesn't cut it anymore. We never really wanted this level of intimacy in our marriages before. It's a historically brand new that we really want lifelong lover relationships in our marriages. Uh, but um, we just can't pull it off with the old, you can't pour the new wine into the old bottle that doesn't work. So leading men and women into increased intimacy is synonymous with leading them beyond those roles, helping women find strong, loving voice and helping men find open-hearted connection to themselves, their thoughts, feelings, and wishes and needs, and uh, connection to others as well. <clears throat> yeah, I, I love that, um, that you're so disclosing in your, in your books, because you know this firsthand in terms of what makes a man want to harden his heart, so to speak. Uh, you talk, talk about your own experience with your father and... Yeah. and some of the ways in which, uh, in some ways, men who have needed that vulnerability, that you know, caretaker bond when they were very young, uh, were socialized out of it uh, for many reasons, and or otherwise, um, in other cases, sometimes suffered abuse and suffered, uh, you know, uh, neglect and, and and needed to sort of somehow survive that situation. So they became more avoidant or aversive or. Uh, had to be taking more care of themselves and their own needs, but that didn't allow them to be available and vulnerable because when they were, they were more easily hurt. You know, look, I, uh, I have a very sensitive uh, ADHD kid. He's now 30 and doing great. But when he was young, he was scapegoated in school. And he would chat, chat, chat until we pulled up to the school. And as we, a block into the school, he would just mask up, he'd harden up. And uh, I, I confronted him one day. I said, what's going on with you? Why can't you be the wonderful guy you are at home as we come here? And here's what he said. He said, see that group of kids, Dad? See how they're chatting and talking to each other? I'm going to walk past them to get to school. I'm going to go, hi. They're going to get stone silent. They're going to turn to me and they're going to stare. And I'm going to go, bye, and I'm going to walk away, and they're going to start chat, chat, chatting to each other again. He said, that's what I deal with every day of my life. So don't get on my ass for turning into a hard ass, because you would too. And the problem is, those boys and girls sensed my son's sensitivity. That's why he was scapegoated. They could tell that he... Um, had that raw sensitivity and they picked on it. And to this day, after 50 years of feminism, for a girl to cross into Boyland is, is still difficult, but not awful. For a boy to cross into Girlland is punishable by really ugly, violent means. And that's still true today in many, many cases. And, and you've talked, I love the fact that you're, that you're sharing that personal anecdote. And I'm sorry, obviously, that our society is still structured that way where that happens. Um, but you've often talked about uh, 
the the fact that a, a male ma a masculine masculinity as it has been traditionally defined is an anti definition in a way right right is not so can you just sort of share that with for me not being a girl not being feminine not being vulnerable um you ask this is nancy Cotero's uh research back in the 70s you ask a girl what it means to be a woman and she comes up with positive identity. You ask a boy what it means to be a man and it's all not. You're not weak, you're not feminine, it, basically you're not a girl. And, you know, I speak about, the other way I talk about patriarchy is that it is institutional despising of the feminine. And that's the feminine in anybody. It could be like my dad punished me as a child when I was vulnerable, he punished vulnerability. Vulnerability was a trigger for him because he hated vulnerability. He was explicit about it. And, um, and so uh, the hatred of the feminine, the hatred of the vulnerability can take place between a man and a woman, but between a man and a child. I, I, I just, just in my class last week, I played a tape of a guy who had a stepfather who uh, assembled the mother and the family and um, made him burn his blanket, his security blanket. Here's the punchline. He was five years old at the time. Uh, this kind of imposition of masculinity on tender-hearted boys is traumatic. And uh, girls have their trauma with the loss of voice and empowerment. And the healing move is to re-empower them. Boys have a very different kind of trauma, which has to do with disconnection. The way we turn boys into men in our culture, traditionally, it's changing, but traditionally, is through disconnecting them. We disconnect them from themselves. We disconnect them from vulnerability. We disconnect them from others. And one of the things I say, Francesca, is that the price of disconnection in boyhood is disconnection as an adult. And every man I treat is a man who's out of touch, either with other people or himself or both. And the healing move is to reconnect the son of the God. It's different and, for boys and for men and women in this regard. And, and, and the name of your um, therapeutic approach is relational life therapy. And so it is that back and forth using um, the other as the, um, way in which to work out these wounds from, uh, you know, early on often is the case. And I, I watched that tape that you reference, and I can't really begin to express how touching it was to actually witness and feel, uh, even through the internet, if you will, how much he was moving through this grief and loss and acceptance and resilience eventually toward uh, being able to recognize that there was a little guy in him that was not treated properly and, uh, you know, by someone, his stepfather in this case, that was age appropriate at the time, somebody who had some idea of masculinity or patriarchy in their head, right? Right. And transferring it and projecting it onto this little five-year-old and that he had to absorb all that and that he held that in his life and in his marriage. And the, the real upshot for me was that the wife in the end said, I can finally be myself. I can just wow. be weary. I don't have to be this sexy, perfect. She wasn't saying she was gonna turn into a jerk. She was saying, I can really just like breathe and we can coexist now. And that I think is in a couple's context, 
how beautiful your work can really mean, but it took him getting there and you brought him there because you're very skillful, but it really took his willingness and ability to see where that wound was and what it represented and to open up. Yeah, well, that's also what gets disconnected. Men disown their own vulnerabilities, which means they disown their inner children. They disown their wounds. Uh, they disown their histories often. And what happens a lot, I mean, what quote-unquote codependence is from this point of view, is uh, the oftentimes, maybe you can speak about this for yourself, a woman will form a deeper empathic bond to the little boy in the man, to the disowned fragility in the man. She feels that more empathically than he does. He's disowned it. And you, women get trapped in the circuit of, uh, if I could just get to that little boy in there and love that little boy, all would be well. Meanwhile, the grown-up man is beating the crap out of her, uh, hopefully uh, psychologically and not physically. But still, uh, you get a man who's behaving badly, and the woman is more in touch with the little boy at the center of that bad behavior than the man is. It's a losing proposition for everybody. We have to own that. But one of the things I say is that maturity comes when we take care of our inner children and don't foist them off on our partners to take care of. And that's what you saw on that tape. Yeah, and, and it was really remarkable. And it, um, it was not a suppression. It was a real evolution. You know, it, it was a very different energy, very different way of being less rigid. You know, Gloria Steinem told me when I was interviewing her a couple of years ago, you know, we're linked, we're not ranked. And this power yeah. over uh, you know, phenomenon that is patriarchy, that if you're not winning, that if someone isn't being subjugated, that you're not, you know, at the top of your heap is societal in terms of the way our economy is structured, the whole. Right. Yeah, one of the things I say is that if everybody uh, woke up in relational recovery, our economy would collapse. But don't worry about it. It's not going to happen. But listen, you know, people say that men are afraid of intimacy. I don't believe that men are afraid of intimacy. I believe that in the one-up, one-down world of men, men don't understand what intimacy is. What men are afraid of is subjugation. They're afraid of being dominated. Because in the world of men, if you surrender, that means somebody else takes over. You're either controlling or controlled, dominator or dominated. And there's no platform for intimacy in that setup. You cannot be intimate from the one up or the one down. You have to have an open-hearted connection that is neither better nor worse than the person you're with. And that our whole culture is based on this lie of superiority and inferiority. Along those lines, it require you know, you talk about um, a lot that in your therapy, when you're doing couples work, you take sides and often you're empowering the woman, you're siding with the woman and you're really, because often it's the woman who has come after 20 years of marriage or whatever to say, this has got to change or I'm out of here. And occasionally it's the other way around or whatever. Um, but that, that in empowering the woman, you know, they're sort of dragging this guy who maybe isn't really aware or interested in, in being there, but you have to find a hook and that's the leverage. You mm -hmm. talk about that piece of leverage, meaning something that is significant or value mm -hmm. to this person who's otherwise stuck in a belief system that is 
the power over as opposed to the you power. You know, look, I, I have a lot of empathy in my heart for guys. I mean, I tell guys all the time, look, Harry, you're a statistic, man. There are like hundreds and thousands of Harrys being dragged off to offices just like mine so that guys like me or women like me can teach you how to be relational. You know, we can't blame every one of your mothers. There's too many of you. So this is a social uh, the, the bottom line, as I see it, is that women have raised the bar, that women, newly empowered, financially independent, want more from marriage than ever before, and that, to be honest, women are asking for more emotional intimacy from men than many men have been raised to deliver. And... The cultural response to that asymmetry has been conservative. If you get, get women to back off, you know, it would be okay with feminism and shrill and man-hating. And um, I don't want women to stand down. I want men to stand up and meet these demands. So I do take the side of the woman in the sense that I am a family therapist. I take the side of intimacy. What we know from research is that intimacy is a damn good thing. It's good for you physically. You'll live longer. Your body will work better. It's good for your kids. It's good for your marriage. It's a good thing. So, Harry, let's roll up our sleeves and teach you how to be more intimate, more emotional, more vulnerable, more communicative, more cherishing. These are all, th you know, guys are like basically bewildered and good-hearted for the most part. That they, they, they would like to please women if they only knew what the women wanted. It's sort of like, tell me what to do and I'll do it. Um, one of the things that women need to learn is to stop complaining. Uh, what we do in our culture, we, we, we're passive in our relationship to relation. You get what you get and then you bitch about it after you get it. That is a terrible behavioral modification program. I want women to be more assertive up front and less resentful on the back end. Right. And, and self-esteem, of course, on both ends with either party is a big part of an ability to, to be able to do that. Um, when, it when, you're, when you're talking about um, this, you're talking about the context of couples, but let's move it out into sort of what's happening now. For example, in this urban center that I live in, New York City. There's a lot of singles, a lot of people dating. You know, half the people are dating, half the people are married in the country, you know, roughly. And um, of course, we're in the middle of this day of reckoning with Me Too and Time's Up and, and all of these other things. So in terms of uh, the folk, somebody who isn't actually attached, a woman who's not actually attached, but who's dating, what does she need to do when she's trying to figure out and suss out whether or not somebody's actually going to be able to meet them? Because I know you've said, for example, some of the younger folks, they're a little bit more natural at this, but some of the older folks yeah. so much. Yeah, I know. The young, I'm a big fan of millennial men. I think that they're, they're uh, worlds better than uh, baby boomer men. Uh, I am a baby boomer man. But all these young men have been raised by feminist mothers in the shows. So uh, that's a leg up. But what, what I tell dating women is two things. Uh, find out how the guy handles himself in his relationships. Ask about previous relationships and see, is he bitter? Does he take responsibility for uh, things that didn't go well? How does he conceive of it? That'll tell you something. Um, don't Focus on the guy. This is a big romantic 
trap. Oh, he's such a wonderful guy. You know, I know he's got it in him if I could just get it out of him. Well, good if you could. But focus instead on how you're being treated. You can have a wonderful guy who intermittently treats you beautifully, but between those beautiful times is a wreck. Uh, you can have a wonderful guy who treats everybody else beautifully, uh, but doesn't treat you all that well. Focus on how you're being treated, not on who the guy is. And um, one of the things I say, Francesca, is don't look for a guy who is all the way there because you're going to have a long wait on your hands. Uh, look for a guy who's good-hearted, smart, willing, and educable. Uh, and educate him. Uh, but not from a one-up, I'm the voice of authority about how relationships go, but from a humble, this is, I'm not giving you relationship instructions, I'm giving you Francesca operating instructions. This is what would work better for me, would you be willing to do it? So women need to be proactive, they need to uh, suss out how the guy handles himself relationally, and they need to work with the guy to get more of what they want with a humble, flexible voice rather than a shrill know-it-all voice. Right. Um, and, and a lot of women could, could use improvement in that category. Uh, one of the things for men I know I've heard is a recommendation is more homosocial behavior, more hanging out with men that is not homoerotic. It is not in that regard, but men fraternizing with men in a way that doesn't resemble, you know, frat boy hazing or something, you know. Uh, but one of the obstacles, I think, to that, that I've witnessed tends to be sort of this alexthemia, this inability to, you know, sort of say or know or define your yeah, own uh, feelings. Can you talk about that at all? Uh, you know what? I, I, I'm not that impressed with so-called masculine intimacy. You know, with a guy who takes a walk in the woods with his father every Sunday, but the guy never talks to him. Uh, you know, I, I have patience where that's literally true. I mean, I am going to uh, end this podcast with you and set up for my monthly poker game with my guys. And we don't talk much about our childhoods or our marriages or our hearts. We talk about the poker game and politics and sports a little bit. Uh, I love these guys, but I don't know them. I love them, but I don't know them. It's not really... It's a certain kind of intimacy, but it's not an intimacy that I would, as a therapist, say is the real deal. When I talk to a guy about intimacy, I say, who can you have a heart-to-heart -heart talk with? If you're having problems with your wife, who can you tell? If you have problems with your health or your job, who can you turn to? Who can you turn to and be vulnerable? And they're a mensch when they respond. And for a lot of men, it's little to none. So I have to train men to take the relationships deeper. And yeah, men hanging out, being deep with men. You know, you can go to YouTube. I did a talk with Robert Bly and, you know, drumming, drumming in the woods and all, all of that. And um, the, uh, what I said in the talk was it's great for us guys to get together and open our hearts to each other. That is truly a blessing and it's wonderful, sacred work. But and when the weekend's over, we have to take that open-heartedness back to our wives and kids. It's not enough just to give it to each other. So guys being close to guys is a great thing, particularly if they really can be close. And, uh, but we still have to take it home to our families. 
So for the man that you described that doesn't really have somebody who's their best friend or a guy friend that they can confide in that way and, you know, use to suss out, how, where would you recommend they start? Obviously, they could uh, go see if they have insurance or whatever they have financial means, they could go see a therapist. But where does or, one... Or a men's group would be great. Okay. Uh, a couple's um, enrichment program at church uh, or synagogue might uh, help a lot. Um, but um, I also teach men to train other men to, be, to go deeper. I, look, just share a little bit that's personal or vulnerable and see how the guy you're talking to responds to it. And guy A is going to like change the subject and talk about sports and you know he doesn't want to hear about it. Guy B is going to say, oh, that sucks. I'm sorry. You know, did you try? What about this? And what about that? And guy C is going to go, you know, that's terrible for you. Let me tell you something that happened to me. That guy, and those are concentric circles of friends. The guy who changes the subject, he's good for, you know, to hang out with. The guy who's going to ask you about you but not share anything about him, that's a little better. The guy who's going to ask you about you and then reciprocate and tell you about him, that's the best buddy. Go after that one. So I teach guys how to uh, cultivate this. Yeah, I think that that's, critical because as you say, you know, things are a practice. I think, I think, you know, sometimes uh, some folks are of the mind that, you know, well, I tried it once or, you know, I, I, and, and, you know, one group might not work, another group might work or, you know, so to just kind of get back on the wagon, if you're committed to learning how to relate differently and better with not only your partner, but just with others in general, but also to recognize that, as you said earlier, intimacy research shows leads to greater happiness, health, and mm -hmm. well-being. Like, mm -hmm. I don't, I think that's underreported. Oh, my God, but there's so much research on it. You know, there's a direct correlation between how quickly somebody recovers from surgery and how many visitors they had in the hospital. There's a correlation between how quickly you recover from uh, health or an injury when you're in the hospital. If there's a window in your wall versus staring at a wall. If the window looks out at other people, you get better quicker. There, 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 pain is diminished if somebody is holding your hand. That was just in the New York Times today. Um, there's just tons and tons of studies that say, even more than if you stop smoking, the nutrition, even more than exercise, intimacy is a predictor of good health. So it's, it's, it's what we're designed to be. It's the pearl of great price. It's the only thing that's going to really make us happy. Along that note, shifting gears slightly to the larger context that is the time that we're in, which is the Me Too era. Yeah. Um, can you talk about... Uh, the impact of that, uh, like, wh what do you think about it that you, from your perspective, you know, that you like and you think has worked? What are the things that if you were writing the script, which I know you weren't, might you have done differently? And what are the conversations or, you know, again, if you were writing the script based on your interpretation need to be done now? Well, uh, one of the things that I talk about are what I call the three rings of patriarchy. The first is that you take a whole human being and split them in half and call one half feminine and one half masculine. The second is that the masculine holds the feminine in contempt. I talked about that earlier. And the third I call the core collusion, which is whoever's on the feminine side 
protects the masculine side, even if they're being hurt by them. You don't tell truth to power. It's scary to do that. And the Me Too movement breaks that rule. I mean, that's what's so utterly thrilling about it. Women are telling the truth to power, and specifically, and in detail, um, and men are being held accountable. Uh, gay men, straight men, you know, it's not just Weinstein, it's also Kevin Spacey. Um, <clears throat> I think that's unbelievable. I think the whole country should be forced into a conversation of what consent really means and the power dynamic in consent. And, you know, we American Puritans can be a little black and white, to be honest, about uh, uh, some of this. Um, you can have uh, younger, I mean, what are you going to outlaw sex between any young person and the older person because the older person has more power? I mean, you can go uh, too far with this, but the subtleties of coercion, the subtleties of uh, when yes uh, doesn't really mean yes because the person doesn't feel like they have the power to say no is a really important conversation for us all to be having. Um, what might I do differently? Um, you know, this is happening in Europe as well as America. And I think that in Europe, uh, to be honest, and I could get into a lot of trouble for this, but I'll do it anyway, it's, uh, it's less punitive. Men are removed from power. Men are uh, removed from positions where they can hurt people. But this kind of, you know, scarlet A and being a pariah and uh, having your entire life ruined. Uh, is, uh, is a, a, a very American uh, phenomenon. And there's a kind of a rage that's being unleashed from years and years of silence and oppression. And I think the next step uh, for the feminist movement, for women in general, is to be both powerful and man-loving at the same time. These are our husbands. These are our sons. These are our fathers and our brothers. Like... Um, what are we doing? And to understand that the system of patriarchy, while it gives men privilege, uh, also hollows them out and costs them their lives. And I'm not talking about their physical life, which is true also because they take dangerous positions, but their emotional life. One of the things I quote is uh, T.S. Eliot's, consider us, if at all, as the hollow men, the stuffed men. And men are first hollowed out of connection and relationship and then stuffed with grandiosity and privilege. It's not a benefit to anybody, although being on the receiving end of a man taking privilege certainly doesn't feel very good. So I, I would like to see empathy for both sexes and at the same time, uh, accountability in the men. Um, thanks for that. I, I know I was doing a, an interview with an incest survivor who wrote a New York Times bestselling book about it. Her name's Deborah King, and she was talking about um, that as being a, um, you know, sort of a foundational trauma for a lot of women. But one of the things she also said uh, was, you know, men are starting to come to her, uh, she teaches in different ways uh, about meditation and, and that kind of thing. 
uh, with, what do I say at the water cooler? I just don't want the women to be at work anymore. I don't know what to do anymore. And so the next question is, what is it with well-meaning men, men who say that they don't want to be sexist or misogynistic or patriarchal, but maybe are, but don't know how to step out of that in just their day-to-day even? Well, you know, I'm old enough to remember the 70s and consciousness raising, and I remember being, um, uh, having my consciousness raised by a lot of women, Uh, you know, if I did something like, uh, I'll bring the notes, you get the coffee or whatever, and that's some of those unconscious male thing. But there's there's a place for that, but do it lovingly. Don't do it, don't. Don't do it shamingly and self-righteously. Do it with a sense of, you know, we're all emerging from this miserable system that uh, hurts us both and hurts the relationship between the two of us. Uh, don't, don't become a, an avenging angel. You know, there was a hashtag that came out with the uh, Oscars called Ask More of Him. And when I was speaking with the editor of uh, a magazine that is devoted to uh, the pro-feminist men's movement voicemail, uh, the editor's Rob Oaken last week, he was saying um, that, uh, you know, he knew the folks that were kind of behind that hashtag. And I said, well, I don't really like that hashtag as much. No offense to the people who created it. Great effort or great, you know, sort of idea behind it. But it sounded a little shaming and punitive. Ask mm-hmm. of him, although that may ultimately be what we need to do. Ask, ask more of him nicely is what I hear you saying. <laughs> well, let, let, let me do it this way. Under patriarchy, you can either be connected or you can be powerful, but you can't be both at the same time. So historically, women have chosen connection or have been forced to choose connection and, uh, and have been disempowered. Men have chosen power and been disconnected. I think it's a losing deal for everybody. What I'm about is healing that rift so that you're connected and you're powerful at the same time. Honey, I really want to hear what you have to say. Could you change your tone so I could hear it? It's a lot better than, are you kidding me? Stop talking to me like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's just two ways of saying the same thing. I talk about standing up for yourself with love, cherishing the person and cherishing the relationship in the same moment that you're standing up. Can, can I tell you a story? You know, I, I can't get through this. Of thing. course. So I had a couple coming in. It was one of these classic situations. Uh, he wanted sex all the time. Young couple. She wanted sex none of the time. And um, I got them talking about what sex meant. And for her, it meant caretaking and pressure. And for him, like a lot of men, it meant feeling loved and desired and, and close. So they left this conversation. They came back two weeks later. They said, we got it knocked. This is a young couple of mine. I said, okay, what did you do? So the next time Harry wanted sex, Sally came up to him, put her arms around him, gave him a big kiss, looked at him in the eye and said, I want you to know I think you're really hot. I think you're really a great guy. I'm tremendously attracted to you. I think that you're a wonderful man, and no, I don't want sex. And Harry, to his amazement, looked at her and went, okay. Right. It's, it's a way of cherishing the other person while you're saying no or standing up at the same time. That, I think, is the next step. 
I love that because, you know, um, I think a lot of women, especially now the way single women, the way that, um, you know, dating is in the media with reality shows and social media, they're just, we're bombarded with porn, with images, with everything. Although all credit to Stormy Daniels for whatever it is that she's coming up with these days in her, uh, in her new kind of expose, yeah. um, right? Uh, an expose of a different kind um, that, that I feel like um, women continue to be objectified. Women continue to be, uh, you know, not seen as people, as humans, allowed to have a full range of experience. And that that's an outgrowth of men not knowing what it's like to have a full range of human experience. Oh, that's nicely said. You know, one of the, one of the consequences of disconnection is disconnection. So you take a guy who's out of touch with his feeling, who isn't particularly empathic, uh, and then you're surprised when he objectifies women. I mean, I'd be surprised if he didn't objectify women. He objectifies everything. He objectifies himself as well. So uh, I agree with you. I think, you know, when I work with sex addicts, and it's a classic move with sex addicts, when a guy starts to objectify a woman sexually, he repeats to himself, oh, wait a minute, this is somebody's mother. This is somebody's daughter. This is somebody's sister. This is a real person in a real context. It's not just a porn queen. And that's what they use to cut into that objectification. Um, but it's hard to be human to the people around us when we're being machines in our own relationship to ourselves. I love that you're circling back to that because we only have a few minutes left. Um, and I guess that is sort of, to me, the upshot of all of it is Women, I don't think, uh, you know, at least in the places that I go, yoga classes, meditation classes, you know, spiritual, you know, sort of seeking type places, women occupy a lot of that space oftentimes, uh, therapy uh, offices, and, and men not necessarily, you know, 50-50. So what could be done in terms of an invitation as opposed to a declaration, you know, you must, uh, to perhaps make any of these practices that it would invite one to be willing to look at the more naughty parts of ourselves, hmm. you know, in, in this case of a man, uh, knowing that, you know, there is some help available, that it is okay, and that the way, you know, across is, is, is through, really. You know, I, I think a little um, loving forcefulness isn't so terrible. Okay. Uh, do the, uh, here's one. Do this as a favor to me. Mm -hmm. Do this for me. This is important to me. I want, I want you to participate in it. Or if it's therapy, uh, I'm not happy with the way things are, and uh, we need to shake this up a little bit. So... As a favor to me, would you do this? One of the sources of leverage, you spoke about that earlier, motivation for a lot of men that I use is the children. What kind of relationship did you have with your father? What kind of father was your father to you? What kind of father do you want to be to your kids? And you know a lot about what it means to be the son of a man who fill in the blank. Uh, do you want to be that guy or can you... Can you work to be a different kind of guy? And a lot of men who won't do it for themselves and may not even do it for their witchy wives uh, will do it to spare their children. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, 
one of the things I say to men is this is not for you alone. This is about changing the legacy. This is about changing what was passed on to you and what you're going to pass on to the next generation. Yeah. And I think that, you know, along that line of thinking, um, another quote here uh, is Caroline Marvin commented that your work was undoing patriarchy one couple at a time. And I think that that's in some ways, maybe where we have to end with this because A, we're out of time, but B, I'm not so sure that always swooping down, you know, is, is, is the only answer. You know, in meditation, there's the different approaches, the swoop and the sweep, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I like both. I think we should do both. I think that the convert, I think that, look, 50 years of the feminist movement has really put a dent in the culture. Uh, I think the proof of that is the changes in millennial men who are the most gender progressive generation the planet's ever seen. Not that they're perfect, but they expect dual career families. They expect dual decision making. They're universally for gay marriage. They're, they're a better, they're a better unit than baby boomer men and beyond. And, um, so I think there is a place for cultural intervention. And I also think, that it's one life at a time. It's both. The personal is political and vice versa. Terry Real, we're going to have to leave it there, given that you have a poker game to get to. <laughs> <laughs> Which I wouldn't miss for the world. No, I, and, 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 I'm, and I'm glad, you know, that's a lot of fun. This is your latest. And yes. um, I also want to just mention that you wrote a great article about um, the Donald Trump presidency and psychotherapy networker. And uh, I think that that's also a good read for people who want to talk about current events. A similar article in salon.com. If you go to salon.com and punch in Terry Real, you'll get uh, the, uh, my article on Trump and patriarchy. Great. And uh, I'll post your website as well. So Terry, I hope that you take home all the winnings this evening and um, enjoy your time with your homies. And I'm very grateful that you were able to be here on Wise Girl today, which by the way, isn't just about being a wise girl or a wise girl. It's about discovering our own inner wisdom, which I think is very much to the point of the work that you do. Well, thank you. And wonderful, wonderful, kind words. And it's always a joy to be with you. Likewise. Take care. Enjoy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.